Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That was beautiful. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 1. We began our series in Romans last week, and and this is week two. And we will, Lord willing, be in Romans for quite some time. Um, We're going to look again at the introduction, the first seven verses, the second half of of Romans 1 through 7, in particular verses 5 through 7. But I'm going to read the whole thing again. And you may be thinking, oh, we're we're covering the same text. Well, listen, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher back in the mid-1900s, took seven Sundays to get through just the first seven verses. So we're ahead of pace. So just so you know. Here's my burden today. I grew up in a church in my hometown in uh, Southern California in the early 1970s, and we went to this church every Sunday. It was the church that my parents were married in, and really the only reason that you'd call this place a church is because that's what we call buildings where people gather on Sunday. There was no gospel. I went to this church every Sunday as a young child. I was in Sunday school. I participated in all the different activities. And I never heard the gospel. The pastor would get up and tell stories, read a few things about how we should be better people, and send us on our way. And the problem, the great tragedy with that church, and many churches like it, is that it lulls people into a false assurance that they are right with their holy creator God simply because they gather in a building that culturally we call a church and they assume that they're okay with God because of that. Even though there's no gospel There is no call to turn from sin. There's no explanation of how we as fallen people can be made right with the holy God, not by our own activity, but by the pure, sovereign grace of God and His work work through His Son on the cross. What a tragedy to go to a place like that all your life and never hear the gospel. What an even greater tragedy to go to a place like that all your life and think that you know the gospel and you've never heard it. And the text this morning, in particular verses 5 through 7, I think Paul is widowing down on this issue. And at the beginning of his letter to the Romans, he is wanting to be utterly clear about why he has been rescued by God and what his purpose is and what his heart is for this church in Rome, that they would be people who have truly seen and beheld and had an experience with the risen Christ and it has transformed and that it would transform all of their life. So with that, let me read verses one through seven. And in particular, we're going to settle down in five through seven. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll work back through this text. Father, I thank you again that we can gather and that we can sing about Jesus freely and we can open your word, which is about your Son, freely. I pray that this morning would not be wasted pray, God, that you would do beautiful things. Every Sunday, Lord, your work is, at least to our eyes in the moment, it's often indiscernible. It's, it's underneath the surface of our lives and in our hearts. But your Holy Spirit is, every Sunday, rushing through this temple like a mighty wind, doing your work. Your word does not return void. Lord, I pray that Christians in this room would be stirred in their our hearts would be warm so that we would see how great our salvation is and, and how that should consume our lives because we belong to Jesus. I pray for my friends in this room who do not yet know you that by your grace you might cause them to come from death to life and give them eyes to see Jesus and put their hope and trust in him alone. Do this, I pray, God, for the glory of your name and for the good of your people and for the salvation of any people that are unbelieving in this room. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked briefly at the introduction, verses 1 through 4 of Paul's letter, and we, we talked about Paul's purpose there at the beginning and the purpose of really centering on the gospel. And he, we, we looked at three reasons that Paul uh, starts this letter to the Romans with. He says, we looked at the, really the gospel and how the gospel is the, it was the point of Paul's life. In fact, it's the point of the whole Bible, and it's all about Jesus. And as he sets that up for us in these first four verses, then in verses 5 through 7, Paul really whittles down into his whole purpose for his apostleship. And remember, we looked at what apostleship is. It's that Jesus has, has sent particular men to be the ones who establish his church and write the New Testament. And he has given a particular set of men this authority. And Paul then becomes one of these apostles as Jesus comes back down from heaven and a return visit to speak to Paul, to knock him off of his horse as he was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, Jesus comes back down and, and calls Paul to believe in him and then sends him out to be one of his apostles, to join the other 12 so that he would be this apostle that takes the gospel to the Gentile world and through whom would come much of the New Testament. This Sunday, verses 5 through 7, Paul really gives us a, a window into what he sees the purpose of his life and really the purpose of the whole letter to Romans. And he uses this phrase that we're going to settle down on, the obedience of faith. 
Now we know that this is an important word or phrase in Paul's letter to the Romans because he begins with it here in Romans chapter 1 and he says this is why I've been made an apostle. This is why God has, has really made me to bring about the obedience of faith in you. And then at the end of the letter, he repeats that same phrase. So he begins by saying, hey, look, the reason I'm writing to you, the reason I was saved, the reason God has sent me is to bring about the obedience of faith among you. And then at the end, in Romans chapter 16, listen to how he ends the letter. Romans 16, verse 25. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So I, I show you there how Paul has bracketed the, letter, bracketed the letter of Romans with this phrase, the obedience of faith, to set up and impress upon us that this is an incredibly important phrase in Paul's thinking. He says, this is the reason I am an apostle. This is the reason I am writing this letter to bring this about. And so we're going to look here at three truths that I think flow from these, four, these three verses, verses 5, 6, and 7. And then when we're done... We are going to come to the Lord's table as a church family. We generally do it on the first Sunday of the month. For a couple of reasons, we've postponed it to today. And so if you are a believer in Jesus, as we revel in the gospel here for a few minutes, we're then going to come to the table where we are going to remember through the bread and the cup, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And so if you are a Christian, even if you're not a member of this church yet, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to this table. If you're not trusting in Jesus... At the end of this sermon, when we come to the table, we would encourage you not to partake in these elements, not because we want to exclude you in any way or single you out, but because we want you to be very clear about what it means to follow Jesus. And I think that's exactly what this text is about. We don't want to give you false assurance like I had as a young child going to this church that made me think I was a Christian even though they never preached the gospel. We want you to wrestle with the claim, the truth, the biblical claim that we are all sinners and our only hope is that Jesus has died for us and we must put our hope in him. And so we're going to come to the table and we'll, we'll talk more about that at the end. Three truths that I want us to see from Romans 1 verses 5 through 7. First, genuine salvation cannot be separated from obedience to the lordship of Jesus. Genuine salvation cannot be separated from the obedience to the lordship of Jesus. And I think that is exactly what Paul is getting at here when he says that the purpose of his apostleship or his ministry is to bring about the obedience of faith. So what does Paul mean by this phrase, the obedience of faith that he begins Romans with and he ends Romans with. Well, before we can understand what it does mean, let's think about what it does not mean. It does not mean that in order to be saved, you need to be obedient to God with your actions, with your life. 
because we know this to be the case because through the rest of the gospel or the, the, the letter to Romans and the rest of the New Testament, we read the reality of the gospel is that we cannot be saved by our works. We can't bring our obedience or our faith to God and then he sees it and he is pleased with it and then he gives us salvation as a kind of payment for our obedience or our faith. That's, that's, that's certainly not what the Bible teaches because clearly we in our natural state before God rescues us, we are dead in our sins. So to say that what Paul is calling about here is obedience it's something that we bring to the table is certainly not what he means. This would undermine the whole message of Paul in the rest of the letter. So what does Paul mean here in verse 5 when he says that the purpose of my ministry is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations? I think what Paul is saying is that saving faith in and of itself is an act of obedience, and it is something that God must give to us. It's not something that we bring because we can't bring anything. We're dead in our sins, and we're going to box ourselves into a corner that I hope you see philosophically here in just a second, and then we'll see how God gets us out of that, comma, uh, that corner. But the point is, is that, that what God is calling for here through Paul is that Faith in and of itself, to believe in who God is and what he has done in his son, comes from this, this heart of obedience. Listen to what Jesus says in, in John chapter 6. And he's, he has, at this point in John chapter 6, he has fed 5,000 people miraculously. He has walked on water. And then in verse 25, it says this, when they found him on the other side of the sea miraculously getting there by walking on water, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered, answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And then listen to Jesus' answer in verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So at its core, to obey God is to believe in him. See, do you see that? So when we're coming, we're, we're going somewhere. So just hang with me if you're like, where, where he's going. What's happening here is that Paul's letter to the Romans and Jesus' discourse with these people is that salvation is not by our works. It's not like I've brought this obedience. I've gotten to this point where I can now be accepted by God. And now here I am. Will you accept me? But rather, actually belief Believing in God is the first root. It is in itself obedience. This faith is obedience. That is what Paul is saying here in verse 5. 
But here's the problem. How can our dead hearts believe? You see, this is the, the conundrum. Is that, a, is that a word? This is the dilemma of salvation. How can we believe when our hearts are dead? And Paul, for the rest of Romans, is going to explain and unpack that very truth that the only way that that can happen is if Jesus, if God in his sovereign grace, makes us alive. I don't have this verse up on the screen, but in Ephesians chapter 2, there's this explanation of humankind, and it says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But... God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. So here, I want you to see this now. Paul is saying that his reason for apostleship, his reason for being in ministry, the reason God made him alive, he was dead in his sins, disobeying God, on a horse, going to Damascus, not understanding the gospel, not believing in Jesus, in fact, wanting to kill people who did believe in Jesus. And Jesus comes down, knocks Paul off of the horse, changes him, saves him, and now commissions him to take the good news of the gospel to the Gentile world. What Paul is wanting us to see is that he sees his ministry his apostleship, as God's means to do that very same thing in the lives of those whom God is saving. Paul's saying this gospel that I received, not because I brought anything to the table, but simply because of God's sovereign grace, now God is going to use me to be a mouthpiece so that when God uses me to preach this gospel, as he wills, he will take it and he will bring about faith and obedience in the lives of the people that he intends to save. And it isn't just, here's the scandal of what Paul is going to unpack for the next 16 chapters. It isn't just the ethnic Jew, but it is all the nations. Paul is setting us up to see the absolute inability of the human to save themselves and the absolute ability of God by his sovereign grace to take dead people and make them alive. So what Paul means here is that salvation is all of God. And we believe, we obey God, we have faith in him because he has made us alive. Let me show this to you just very briefly in 1 John chapter 5. It's at the very end of the Bible. Let me have, put it up on the screen there in case you don't want to flip. This is what the Apostle John says. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It's very, it's very important that you see that there. See, see what the logical sequence that's going on in the apostle's mind? He's not saying that if you believe, then you'll be born again. So it's not, hey, bring obedience and faith. Bring these things. Bring a, a relatively acceptable, decent life, and then God will meet you with salvation. No, you, you come with nothing, 
Paul and everybody else through, since then preaches the gospel, you hear the gospel, and the gospel brings about the very thing that it calls for. The gospel produces salvation. It produces life. The gospel causes us to be born again so that we can believe. So do you see that? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In other words, belief, faith, the obedience that is faith is a result of God working on you, not so that God will work on you. Do you see that? And Paul is setting us up here to strip us from any self-reliance and to humble us all before a sovereign God and to humble religious people who think that they're right with God by, by some other reason. Let me, let, me, let me help us also understand this by just, by just drilling down on this a little bit more by saying that then what is really important in this is that you see that this saving faith is it's an obedient faith. It's not just a one-time act of faith. This obedience that is saving faith then results in a life that is obedient. Does it mean Christians are perfect or they don't sin? Of course not. I mean, come on, we all know that. Just look at our own, look at my own life. I mean, we just, we see the, the, the gaps in our sanctification. But Paul is not just saying here that faith is a gift from God, but that a true saving faith is a faith that is obedient. Why is this so important? Because there's this very wrong teaching that exists in, in, in much of American Christianity that, that somehow you can accept Jesus as your Savior at one point, and you can kind of do whatever you want to do, and then you can get serious about Him and then accept Him as your Lord later on. Nothing could be further from the truth. Saving faith is obedient faith. Now again, I want to stress, this does not mean that Christians don't sin, and it doesn't mean that we don't at times sin grievously, but if we can just sort of play games with God, like I'm going to get fire insurance now, and then I'm going to delay my saving faith to bring obedience in the picture later on, friends, that's not what the Bible calls us to. It's not how the Bible pictures salvation. Listen to two commentators about how they help us understand this phrase, obedience to faith. One says, I have these two quotes on the screen, hence, the implications of this expression, obedience of faith, are far-reaching. For the faith which apostleship, or Paul's ministry, was intended to promote was not an act of emotion, but the commitment of wholehearted devotion to Christ and to the truth of the gospel. Another says, so very closely are faith and obedience connected that they may be compared as inseparable, identical twins. When you see one, you see the other. A person, listen to this sentence, a person cannot have genuine faith without having obedience and vice versa. So do you see that? That we can't just say, oh, well, I'm going to accept Jesus now, kind of do what I want to do, and then I'm going to get serious about him later on and accept him as Lord. The Bible knows nothing of that type of salvation. 
Paul is calling for a complete surrender that we would, as he says in verse 6, belong to Jesus Christ. Listen to how the Bible, in just a few verses, describes this great salvation. Galatians 2, and just take this in. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And what price, if we are Christians, were we bought with? The perfect life of Christ. Who remember who is Christ? We talked about that last Sunday. He is fully God and fully man and God is holy. Mankind is sinful because of our sin that we all participate in. We cannot stand before a holy God. We are separated from him, dead in our sins, unable to do anything to make ourselves right with God. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity comes, lives a perfect life, lays down his perfect life on the cross, bears the wrath of God, extinguishes it, removes it, rises again from the grave, victorious over sin, death, and the grave, and now gives, calls, commands, gives new life to those whom God has saved, and he makes them alive. If he has done all that, we can't just have this sort of easy believism that exists in much of American church culture. Or we can just kind of do whatever we want. But of course, Christians sin grievously. We all sin grievously. A quote that's been very helpful for me to understand the balance between these is from William Arnaud. It's probably the quote that I've read most here over the years. Not from Spurgeon, I might note. Although he was a contemporary of Spurgeon, a British theologian back in the 1800s. So helpful to me. He says this. The difference between an unconverted and converted man is not that one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, while the other takes part with a reconciled God against his own sins. So do you see that there, what Paul is saying, that the obedience of faith that he's called to bring about, this sovereign grace that makes us alive, and then must produce some measure of obedience in our lives. He's not saying that Christians don't sin. That's what 1 John is about. It tells us that, yes, we will sin. If any of us say that we don't sin, we lie about the gospel. But when we do sin, we have this advocate because he is the one that owns us. But this picture that Arnaud paints for us here is so helpful because it tells us what is our posture towards our remaining sin, that we're taking God's side against our dreaded sin rather than taking sin's side against the dreaded God. One is a Christian, the other is self-deceived. So there's the truth, and we'll move on, but just to repeat it one more time, genuine salvation cannot be separated 
from obedience. And obedience is progressive and it grows in the Christian life. That's sanctification. But salvation cannot be separated from obedience to the lordship of Christ. We cannot accept him one day as Savior and then years later as Lord. He is Lord and Savior inseparable. And the life of a Christian is to give ourselves in wholehearted devotion to Christ. Who does that perfectly? Who does that? That's why we need each other. That's why we need to be part of a church community where we care for one another and encourage one another and link arms in gracious firmness with one another to help one another press towards that genuine salvation. Second truth is this, that the purpose of this salvation is the glory of Jesus among all peoples. The purpose of this salvation is the glory of Jesus among all peoples. Look again at the second half of verse 5 and verse 6. He says that he received this apostleship to bring about this obedience, true salvation, genuine salvation. Why? For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. But there's two things that are embedded in this truth that I want us to see. And the first is, I want us to see the, the primacy of God's glory as the motivation for salvation. Another thing that we, I think, are at a disadvantage at oftentimes in, in sort of American self-obsessed culture is we tend to think of ourselves as the center of God's universe, in fact, um, I have a bobblehead doll in my office to help me remember that we are not the center of the universe. And it's a bobblehead doll. I collect bobblehead dolls, by the way, if you're ever looking for a good gift. But it has to be a good bobblehead doll about somebody that has like some historical or theological significance. Um, so anyway, so don't get me a, a, a presidential Donald Trump bobblehead. Please don't send me that. Not that I'm not praying for Donald Trump, just... It's usually, I want a historical figure. Theolo- anyway, whatever. I'm just asking. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> I have this bobblehead of Nicholas Copernicus, who was a Polish scientist in the 1500s. And I've told you about this before, about Nicholas Copernicus postulated that, hey, wait a minute. Actually, I think we as the earth are rotating around the sun, when up to that point, everybody believed that the sun was rotating around us. In fact, Copernicus was branded a heretic for his, what they thought was his wrong view of how the heavens operated. But it turns out our boy Nick was right. And what he postulated has now become truth and is now known as the Copernican Revolution. And when we see the gospel rightly, and then when we see behind the motivation of God in the gospel, we see actually that as Americans, we are prone to think that God loves us so much that he would send his son for us. And yes, I want to emphasize and underline and underscore and, and, and tout and herald the love of God for his people. But the ultimate motivation of God in saving anybody is not primarily because he loves us, but because he loves his son and he wants to bring glory to his son. And the love that he has for his people is embedded in, it's a consequence of the glory that he, the love that he has for his son. He loves us because he loves his son. And do you see 
Why that is so important? Because there's something so much more important than we are. We are not the center of the universe. God and his glory is. The purpose of salvation is the glory of Jesus. And then notice also that this glory of Jesus is to be seen among all peoples. Salvation is universal. And by the word universal, I don't mean that everyone is saved. Clearly, we know that's not the case as we see uh, the warnings of eternal judgment in the Bible and people that die separated from God. By universal, rather, I mean that all types of people can be saved. In fact, God does save all kinds of people. And that's one of the big premises of Romans, that not just the Jew, but also the Gentile. God has purpose to save through his Son. And that is good news for us because although we may not be hung up in a tension between Jews and Gentiles, we do instinctively think sometimes, is that person or even am I beyond God's grace? Friends, no one, no one, not even a man breathing murderous threats to Christians on a horse to a city to drag more Christians to their death is beyond God's grace. God can and does save anyone. That's the good news of the gospel. Another just quick application before we finish with the third truth is that when we think about the glory of Jesus among all peoples, I think in a church like Crosspoint, it's easy for us, and praise God for our missions endeavors and the, the heart for foreign missions that we have here. I love that, and in no way do I want to mute that at at all. I, in fact, I want to fan it into flame. I want more people from this church to give their lives away in short and long-term service to the nations. But sometimes in churches like ours where there is a culture of giving and going and being part of foreign missions and missions trips, there can be this sort of laxness towards our responsibility of the gospel towards just the other peoples that are around us here, even locally. So when we see that the, that the purpose of salvation is the glory of Jesus among all peoples, let's not just think of Uganda and Haiti and China and Kosovo and Central Asia and all of these places as wonderful as all of those impulses are and as true as those things should be. But let's think about all peoples in other parts of our city, in other neighborhoods, just ordinary Christians going cross-cultural, not just necessarily to other nations, but to uh, people even here in our city. And, and I see so much of that in this church. I see, I see people in this church uh, hosting foreign officers from other countries that are coming to Fort Benning. And there's this one particular lady that it, it just almost weekly is putting a prayer request on the card where she is mentioning, hey, I have this opportunity to um, be in uh, uh, just in a relationship with these two Middle Eastern women that are here because their husbands are training at Fort Benning. And so pray for me that I might bring the gospel to them. Or, or I just see people in this church just, just kind of getting outside of their own little subculture and caring for people, even other Americans that are 
part of our, of our, of our city that maybe are not like them at all. And, and I pray that God would fan this into more of a flame in us and we would see that God's glory is the purpose of all things among all peoples, among, among Americans and among Uzbekis and among uh, Haitians and among Ugandans and amongst white people and amongst black people and amongst brown people and amongst Asian people and amongst rich people and poor people and amongst all types of people, people that live on the north side of Columbus and people that live on the south side of Columbus, people that are educated, people that are uneducated, all types of people is the point of God's glory in salvation. And then finally, we end with this before we come to the table, and I think this is so important for us to see, that to be a Christian means God loves you simply because he loves you. And you say, well, Brad, that, that's a little elementary. Why is that an important truth for Christians to consider? Well, let's, let's look at it. To be a Christian means God loves you simply because he loves you. Look at verse 7. He says that he's writing to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple things I want you to see there. First, that word those. God has a particular love for a particular group of people, his people. So in one sense, God loves all of his creation. But clearly, friends, if we just spend a little bit of time reading the Bible, we see that God has a particular, a saving love for his people. And what's going, in fact, we, we can all relate to that. In one sense, a father or a person can love all peoples, want good things for all people, but he loves his family, his children, in a particular different way than he loves all people. And what Paul is saying here is he's writing to this church to assure them of God's particular love for them. And when God loves somebody, he calls them and he makes them into saints. We see this all throughout the Bible. All the way back into the Old Testament when God deals with the nation of Israel. And his dealings with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament give us a kind of picture of God's grace in the life of any person that he saves. So his dealings with Israel in the Old Testament are a kind of picture of salvation. And this is what God says about his love for Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 6. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Was Israel particularly holy at various times? No, often they were very unholy, but God makes them holy. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Listen to verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So what is that verse saying? It's saying that God did not create the world and mankind scattered them into nations and said, you know what, I'm going to sit back and wait to see how this plays out. I'm going to pick out the more aggressive alpha males on the playground and I'm going to pick those nations 
for my team. That's not the way God works in the Old Testament, in the saving of Israel. And it's not the way it works in any of our lives. God tells Israel that I love you not because there was anything good or lovable or powerful or meritous or noteworthy in you, but I love you simply because I love you. And friends, that's salvation. That's why God loved the Jews in the Old Testament. That's why he loved the the, the Romans and the Roman church. And that's why he loves anybody. Not because he's compelled, because there's anything good in us. But because he loves us. Friends, he loves us because he loves us. The implications of that are huge. If he doesn't start loving you because of anything good in you, then he doesn't stop loving you because of anything in you. Salvation is all of grace. It is not earned by what we bring to the table. It is not lost by our weaknesses. It is, in the truest sense of the word, unconditional. Jesus' love, God's love for us is unconditional, meaning that it isn't given in response to conditions that existed in us before God set his love on us. If that were the case, friends, how dreadful would it be what are, when, is enough, when is enough work enough that God would give us the condition of his love in response to our conditions? Friends, that's not the truth of the Bible. The truth is that God's love for his people is unconditional. He loves us because he loves us. What effect should this have on the life of a believer? Even as we look at the beginning of the truth, and it doesn't sound like, wait a minute, Brad, you were talking about the beginning, that you can't just, you know, you, you have to be this Christian that's obedient. What do you say? No, that, uh, where, where there's true, saving, unconditional grace of God, it will produce some measure of obedience in a person's life. But even that, God doesn't love us because we're obedient. He loves us because he loves us. And so what should that produce in the life of a Christian? I end with this illustration before we come to the Lord's table. I think I've shared it with you before on several occasions, but it's so helpful for me. Think of a little boy that is up to bat playing baseball. And consider this little boy, and maybe he has one of those psychopath dads that wasn't a very good athlete himself, and now he's trying to live vicariously through his son. You ever met one of those clowns? Yeah, they're out there. Maybe that's some of you dads, and you need to repent of your psychopathness and just let your kid be a kid. Instead of carting him off to baseball practice eight times a week and getting him his own. Anyway, whatever. And picture this little kid who's playing baseball, and his dad is behind the dugout or behind the fence, and there's pressure on this little kid to perform. And he's saying to his son, Come on, son. Dig that foot in, choke up on the bat, look for fastball, adjust to the curve, put some wood on that ball, and get a hit. And instinctively, that little kid knows that 
the joy that his father has in him is somehow intrinsically tied to whether or not he is good. And that kid gets up there and he digs in. And, you know, he may every now and again get a hit, but there's an anxiety and there's a nervousness in him that will wreck that kid's soul. And that's the way many people view God's grace. Do it now. Do it. If you don't, somehow I'm not going to be pleased with you. And we navigate through the Christian life with sweaty palms and nervous legs, wondering whether or not God is going to remove his grace from us if we strike out. And the problem is we do strike out all the time. But contrast that with a picture of a little boy whose daddy loves him not because he's a good athlete or a good baseball player, but he loves him because he loves him. And that dad tells that little boy who gets into the batter's box scared and wondering whether or not this big 12-year-old with a beard who throws a fastball (laughs) is going to hit him with the ball. (laughs) That was my experience, by the way. We played... And we were right on the Mexican border when I was a little kid, and we would play, like, all-star games against the Mexican um, all-star teams and right across the border. <clears throat> and let's just say they don't pay as much attention to birth certificates over there in Latin America. I can remember this kid, like, you know, putting out a cigarette, looked like he was 18 years old in Little League with a full beard, and drove his family to the game, you know, <laughs> dying. Picture this little kid who's scared, and he's anxious. He's not sure if he's going to get a hit, but his dad, his dad, he's behind the chain link fence and he says, he says, Johnny, I love you, son. I love you. I don't, I don't care if you strike out a hundred times. Do your best. And whether you fail or whether you hit a home run, I love you. I love you, and my love for you is not based on anything in you. My love is based on my love for you. And that's it. And what should that produce in a, in a little boy? Well, the obedience of faith, because the love of God so melts and transforms our heart that it doesn't cause that little kid to just want to run around and be a knucklehead. It causes that little kid to dig in and say, my daddy loves me no matter what, so I'm going to give it all I got. I'm going to give it all I got. And Paul says that's the reason for his ministry, to bring about the obedience of faith that springs from sovereign grace that comes from a God in heaven who says to a people that he has called from death to life, whom he has rescued by his son's work on the cross for his glory. All types of people, smart people, dumb people, rich people, poor people, black people, white people, Jewish people, Gentile people. He puts his love on a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, not because they are good or lovely, but he loves them because he loves them. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. And if you are a Christian, that is why God loves you. And you can rest in that grace. And no matter what this world throws at you, God loves you. And it doesn't mean you do whatever you want to do. It means that you become so overwhelmed 
with the heart. The Father's heart is so beautiful and so compelling and so irresistible that you want to grow. You want to obey. You want to love. You want to take the Father's side <laughs> against your dreaded sin. And that's salvation. That's the Christian life. And we come now to this table to celebrate and remember how God brought it all about through the work of His Son, dying a sacrificial death on the cross, bearing His wrath for His people whom He loved, removing it, and now giving His people faith and righteousness so that when God looks at us, He doesn't see our weakness. He sees the righteousness of His Son. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. If you're a Christian, you walk in that type of unconditional love. And if you're not a Christian, friends, wh wh where else could you go? Where else could you be made right? Up to this point, have you been trying to make yourself right with a holy God by your obedience? Oh, friend, I hope, I hope that God has shown you in these past hour that that's like filthy ring. I can never work. You have to have an obedience of faith worked in you from something outside of you, and that's God's love that transforms your heart and makes you willing and able now to follow him. Turn from your sin. Turn from your own, own obedience. Turn from trusting in yourself. Turn from your own righteousness and put your hope in the only one who can give you the very thing that you need, which is something outside of yourself. A righteousness is not your own. It's Christ that he gives to all those that will turn from their sin and put their hope in him. Turn away from yourself. Stop being a religious person who thinks that you can be made right with God by something that you do. Look away and look to him because he is the one who can give you the very thing that he requires of you and it's only him alone. And if that's you, friend, you right now, you look away from yourself, you turn to Jesus, you put your hope in him and then you, like every other sinner in this room that's been saved by grace, can come to this table and when you take that bread and you drink that cup, what you are proclaiming is not your own obedience and righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ that is for you if you believe and the way you believe is by God giving you that belief. It's a gift. So even the belief right now that he is giving you, that is causing you to finally turn away from yourself and put your hope in him, it's a gift. It's not something you bring to the table. And that should cause us all the more to worship God for his love with which he loved us because he loves us. Let's pray. Father, take these words now and use them to bring about the obedience of faith, true saving faith, and people that do not know you and use them to wake sleepy Christians and weak Christians and trembling Christians and anxious Christians from our gospel amnesia where we forget so clearly the truth of the gospel that you love us because you love us and let that unconditional grace produce in us not less zeal to fight our remaining sin, 
but more zeal because pleasing the Father is the new desire of the new heart. Lord, do this, do this. I pray for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.